All right, I'm honored and excited to welcome a special guest this week. He's retired Colonel Byron Sullivan, call sign Shrek, who recently completed his 27 years of service as a Marine Corps fighter pilot. He's commanded at the highest levels in the Marine Corps. He has fought in combat in Iraq three times, twice in, in air, once on the ground, as a forward air controller in Ramadi, Iraq. He holds a National Security Strategy Master's Degree from the National War College, what you'll recognize is that he's a Top Gun instructor pilot. He's got tons of insight and expertise that we as Americans can learn from. Shrek, welcome to the main event. Ed, thanks a lot. Uh, very excited to be here with you today. Um, I know that uh, I promised you this interview for uh, for a little over a year and a half now uh-huh. uh, since we first met at Renee's, and uh, and uh, and I'm really excited to to have a good conversation with you this afternoon. Yeah. So uh, so for those of you that don't know, what we're talking about. Uh, uh, Shrek would uh, would fly in from Yuma doing uh, training exercises on the weekends, and they would they would uh, spend the night at March because the only place you can that you can uh, safely store a F thirty five, and uh, they know this little hole in the wall near there called Renee's. It's a little neighborhood bar that has excellent food, but if you don't if you've never been there, you'd never know it was there. And uh, we met there and uh, shared some adult beverages and some red meat and some uh, some exciting stories. And I kept saying, "You need to come on my radio show." And then, and then every every month or two, we'd we'd meet out there and more drinks, more red meat. And uh, I'd say, "You need to come on my radio show." And then he'd say, "I'm retiring in October of 22. As soon as I'm officially retired, you got me." So uh, happy retirement! All right. <laughs> Thanks. It doesn't feel much different, but uh, actually it does feel a ton different. Um, I think my hair is turning black again, and uh, and I feel good. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So when the stress goes down, the, the hair goes back to Maybe. Norm- we'll normal see. colors? I'm hoping. It's always it's wishful thinking. That's I was, I was wondering if that would happen, because mine's almost all gray, so <laughs> <clears throat> I'm, I'm hoping to see it come back. So let's talk about, let's talk about your real-world experience. Let's talk about... Uh, I want to get. There's so much stuff I want to talk to you about. Um, you know, you are you're you're you're, you're the real Maverick. You're the real uh, uh, Viper. You're the you know f- you were you were at Top Gun in 2004, and you were an instructor from when to when? So I was a months. Well, after I left Top Gun, I instructed as a Top Gun instructor throughout the fleet, Marine in the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, I taught at the, the at the Marine Corps Weapons School, Marine Aviation Weapons and Tactics Squadron One, which they haven't made a movie about yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, uh, on a different level, it's a much more uh, mission-oriented level at uh, Mots One, what we call Mots One. Uh huh. Um, and where is that located? Top Gun. That's in Yuma, Arizona. Okay, so that's where you were at. So I instructed I there for two years, from ten to twelve, and then uh, had command of a of a F eighteen squadron out here in Miramar. Then I went and did my Pentagon penance, and then when I came back, where you when you met me, I was I was the commanding officer of our Marine Corps operational. Test and Evaluation Squadron 1, VMX-1, mm-hmm. in Yuma, Arizona. Um, that's where I started flying the F-35B, uh, which is a hovering variant. Uh, we also did the 53K, uh, the initial operational test and evaluation of that aircraft. Mm-hmm. Um, V-22s, Cobras, Hueys. We had everything on the flight line, so I could literally walk out and fly just about anything I wanted hey, what, to. Hey, which car do I feel like taking today? That's right. Yeah, and- <laughs> Uh, I, I asked, I asked Trek when we were at, uh, Renee's one night, I said, Hey, what does it take to get a ride in one of those? He goes, you have to know how to fly it. There's only one seat. <laughs> That's right. <clears throat> but I did get to, I did get to watch it up close to uh, take off one, one Sunday morning. Hey, you know what? Hey, I get out of church at 1045. He goes, well, we leave about 1030. I'll sleep in tomorrow so you could watch. <laughs> and, and Shrek and I are texting while he's in the, while he's in the cockpit. 
saying, okay, are you ready? Here I come. Watch how I take off. Pretty, pretty exciting. Pretty exciting to watch that stuff. Yeah. And then you're saying, did you see me do this? I said, no, you were out of sight by the time. <laughs> you're, you're, off the, you're off the ground, and 30 seconds later, I can't see you anymore. <clears throat> Good stuff. So let's talk, let's talk about I want to talk about a lot of the what looks like to us civilians just chaos in the military and what happened in Afghanistan and Ukraine. I want to talk about a lot of that, but I'm going to kind of let you go with um, – the whole Middle East thing. Tell me, tell me from from the standpoint of you were there, you were in leadership position, you saw you saw leadership decisions being made. Start yeah. start from start from uh, from uh, from nine eleven. So and, uh, okay, Ed. <clears throat> well, um, the the interesting thing about war. And when we decide to wage war militarily, um, or, or what, why are we going to war? What are the national security interests that we are defending and making sure that we can continue to push forward uh, when we decide to put men and women from this country into harm's way? And, um, you know, when you look at today's national security strategy, uh, it remains about the same. It's to protect the American people, expand the economy. Uh, the prosperity and the opportunity for that, realize and defend democratic, de- democratic values that the heart of the American that are at the heart of the way, American way of life. Ultimately, it's to advance the American influence with peace through strength. So when we decide, when our president decides to send us to combat, that means that three other instruments of power have failed: diplomacy, information, and economic information are. Uh, power instruments of power have failed we have four total instruments of power diplomacy information military and economic um so when we decided after 9 11 we decided that it was time to go to war uh what did we do we went straight into afghanistan we chased down al-qaeda we chased down bin laden i believe that that was right i think that that was the right thing to do uh how we went about that uh could have been done differently uh, in in the long term. Hindsight being twenty twenty, you know when you read about war and you read about different conflicts that have happened, you oftentimes go, "Oh my God, that was so stupid." But at the time, it might have seemed like the right decision. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm sitting on the border, uh, getting ready to go into Iraq uh, in my F eighteen, we didn't know if we were going to make it out. We didn't. And you, know. were, and you were in Kuwait at the time. I, I was in Kuwait at the time. Okay. I mean, we got there, we were sleeping on plywood uh, the second night. The first night we were on the sand next to our F-18s. The next night we got plywood. The CBs were amazing. Little villages started popping up all over the place. And then all of a sudden, you know, we had a whole uh, Marine Air group there ready to go to combat. Uh-huh. Um, Happiness is a warm fighter fighter jet. <laughs> that's right. Sounds, sounds like a Beatles song. <laughs> Um, and then we decided we, that it was time to go. Uh, I was on one of the very first strike missions, uh, which was, uh, you know, at night in the sandstorm, rolling in, dropping uh, three 2,000-pound bombs of VT fuses on a, troops in a trench line. And uh, I believed at that time what we were doing was absolutely necessary to defend our nation. I believed that it was within, you know, in purview of our national security interests, something that we needed to protect because we honestly believe that he had, that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction mm-hmm. and we did not want to let our country get attacked again. Um, do you think, do you think that we just didn't find them or he didn't have them? I think it might be a little of both. 
Uh, I think that some of them might have uh, exited the country. Uh, I'm not 100 percent sure, and, uh, but I had seen reports that you know aircraft left mm-hmm. into Syria and different uh, countries and trucks and trucks. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but ultimately, I'm going to briefly describe this because I think it helps set the stage for what my experience can show to the long term. And, and what that is, is we did the invasion, and it was full-up war. Literally, we didn't know if we were coming back from any one of the missions. Uh, you know, today we look back at it and think it's a cakewalk. At the time, you were strapping on that F-18 going into combat, and you didn't know if you were coming home. Mm-hmm. Um, and same, same for the guys on the ground. Even worse for those guys. They spent 30 days in mop gear, mops, mop suits, which are chemical suits, to make sure that you don't get uh, chemed. Because we... <laughs> We, we, no kidding, believed it. I'll tell you 100% that I was in and out of this gear with the, with the full-on mask, hood, everything fully covered up multiple times, you know, at least 20 times mm-hmm. uh, in between missions and stuff when we'd come back. Um, so we go in, we take them down. I went back uh, about a year later uh, on the ground as a forward air controller. And, you know, for people to understand what a forward air controller does – um, I'm basically the aviation integrator between the ground side and the air side. Mm-hmm. So I'll take what my battalion commander is. At the time, I worked uh, for 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines as their air officer. And uh, my battalion commander was a lieutenant colonel at the time, Roger Turner. Now he's, uh, he's hopefully going to become the commandant of the Marine Corps. We'll see. But truly a great American. Unbelievable. I would have followed that guy in a burning building knowing that we were never coming out. Um, but he let me defend our Marines on the ground with aviation and, and knew that I was going to do it right based on the training that we had. Mm-hmm. We were in the city of Ramadi, Iraq, and we were up close and personal with the, everyone who lived there. And I can tell you that uh, they didn't want us there and we didn't want to be there. It'd be like if the Russians came into the United States and said, hey, we're going to teach you how to be communists, right? That's not the way that they live. Um, but they understood eventually – this was the first when we started doing the first elections. I remember the first one was kind of a joke. The second one was a little bit better. People actually showed up. Mm-hmm. We still took mortar rounds at all the election sites during those times. But, um, but during that time, the, uh, this was before the awakening. And I don't know if people remember the awakening. They call it the uh, – at the time we were calling it the Al Ambar awakening. Um, but during that time – I watched the people of that country decide that they wanted their country back, okay? And what that meant was they were going to stop fighting us and start fighting the bad guys because what had happened after we shut down the world's third largest army, which was a horrible decision in my mind, we should have given it back to the military, helped them get it back up and running, make sure that the leadership understood if they do it again, we're going to come back and take them out. Uh-huh. But that's a different part that's of the just, story. That should be the end result. Right. Of all wars is take out the bad guys, let the good guys there take over the country. Take over the country. Not us. Not us. Nation building, we do not do a good job of nation building. and Because um, it's not our nation. That's right. And it's not the way that the people go. And so since I've mentioned the people about four times now, what I'd like to talk about real quick is uh, it, when you really study war, you study Clausewitz as a you know, Clausewitz on War is, is a tremendous book. I recommend to read it if you've got time on your hands. But one of the things he talks about in there is the Trinity. And it's the people, the government, and the military. Mm-hmm. And what we forget about 
anytime we look at combat, when anytime when we look at nations, what I think that the number one thing our people, our people and the politicians in this country forget about are the people. And I can tell you, uh, going into houses, talking to people that were on the streets in Ramadi, talking to people that were in their homes. I mean, these people aren't savages. They're doctors, lawyers, you know, professionals, school teachers, everything. They don't live in caves? No, they just wanted their city back and their Uh country back. But what ended up happening was these people woke up and they said, you know what? I can remember standing in a room with a local chieftain and Lieutenant Colonel Turner saying, hey, look, you don't want us here. We don't want to be here. You guys need to take your city back. And the chieftain said, we've invited them here and we can't get them to leave. And he was talking about the insurgency. Mm-hmm. And about two months later, what we hear is gunfire in the streets all over the place and no one's shooting at us. It was the locals taking back their country. And when I went back there in 2009, the buildings that we had blown up, everywhere that we had fought, there were parks, there was hustle and bustle. You could see a thriving city in Ramadi, Iraq. Mm -hmm. And when we decided, when our politicians decided that we were just going to up and leave and leave those people hanging, that's exactly what happened. We left a void. The Iranians moved in. The Syrians uh, started their peace at the same time that civil war started. And it created this middle area where ISIS was born. And then we had to go back and do it all over again. So what you're saying is, what you're saying is that we should have left a small contingent of people that would just rotate throughout the years just to say, hey, we're here. That's right. We're here. Don't don't mess with these people. I mean, we won World War II. We still have troops in Germany, troops in Japan, all over the place. Not saying that you know, that I'm a super huge fan of, uh, you know, uh, policing uh, states, but we have to keep our finger on the pulse. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean that we have to have large amount of military personnel there. It just means that we have to have some people there that know what's going on. We're going to take up a little real estate. We're going to keep some of our, uh, some of our weapons and uh, we're ready if, if we need to go in to, to help out, but Hey, we're just here. That's right. We can operate. We can do all kinds of stuff from all over the all over the world. Just having a physical presence there just keeps peace. Exactly. And it goes back to I think one of the questions that we're going to talk about is, and the first one on your list here is the Afghan pullout. And uh, and there is a huge difference between a withdrawal and a retreat. Mm-hmm. A withdrawal is a voluntary movement by a military to either get reset and come back in and fight again or to simply withdraw. A retreat is, this is not good. I'm going to try and save whatever I can. We are being forced out by someone else. Okay? The way that the politicians in this country and our president got involved with the what, what should have been a withdrawal from Afghanistan mm-hmm. was the worst debacle I think has ever happened in this country since its birth. It, it is, it, it was demoralizing to every single military person that I've ever talked to. Uh, and most importantly, it was demoralizing to the folks who went there and bled for the Afghan people, just like the folks who I was with who bled for the Iraqi people. When we saw the rise of ISIS, 
It was like, are you kidding me? What was all that for? What was all that for? And, um, you know, it's a hard thing to digest from the, uh, from the perspective of, you know, what have we done? Why were we there in the first place? Okay. Maybe that, maybe the decision to go there wasn't the right decision. Maybe the decision to go in and try and nation build in Afghanistan wasn't the right decision. I don't think it was. We, you are not going to change those people. Okay. They don't want what we have in this country. And that goes back to the people who are often forgotten about. But George, George W. Bush always said he thinks that the heart of, the heart of every man is they want to be free. And if we gave them, and if we gave them the opportunity that they would, they would want that. Do you not agree with that to a point or just the, we should have just stayed in. We should have just gave them an example, got rid of the bad guys and stayed there and just, Hey, we're here if you need us. Otherwise this is your country. Well, it kind of, it kind of goes back to, uh, uh, one of the analogies I used to use when I was in Ramadi, um, you know, we would roll out of the gates with six or seven Humvees and, and there's hustle and bustle in the streets. As soon as you get out there, it's like ghost town, everything goes away. And the fleas just scatter. Right. And we are like the elephant chasing the flea. We had a reason to go in Afghanistan. We should have made that, made that the in state of what we needed to go do there. We didn't, the idea of going into Afghanistan and pushing down Al Qaeda with a huge force that's going to be there. When do we leave? And, and is that when we've built the nation, when we've trained these people that, you know, Sharia law isn't the law that you're going to live by? Mm-hmm. They don't believe that. Yeah, you got to go in with a hey. What's the what's the uh, what's the end game? What's the object? What's the object? What's our objective here? That's right. When do when do we know it's over? You know, and a, per, a great example is George Bush Senior. When we pushed the Iraqis out of Kuwait, Colin Powell said, "Stop. We've achieved our objective. We do not need to go further north." And we stopped. And everybody, you know, he took some some heat for that. People thought, wow, you should have went in and just taken out Saddam. You had him on the run. Everything mm-hmm. was over. I thought. Yeah. Well, I mean, if that was our objective was to take out Saddam, then that meant, then we should have continued. Mm-hmm. But in this case, the objective was to free Kuwait. And that's what we ended up doing. And I think that, you know, Colin Powell did a good job of making sure that, uh, that, that we stuck to that. Yeah, but once, as, as you've said, you're, you're there in war. You go in with, with one objective, and you see how things are going. If we got to that point and said, hey, we really need to take out Saddam Hussein, or this is just going to happen as soon as we leave. And, of course, we're still in Kuwait. But uh, you don't think that that should have happened? Um, so uh, one of the things that people talk about is a balance of power uh, in around the globe, Right. And so sometimes a balance of power is leaving Saddam Hussein. An example of a balance of power would be leaving Saddam Hussein in power because if we take Saddam Hussein out, who's going to replace him? The Iran is powerful, and they are not our friends. Mm-hmm. And if we take out the guy who's fighting our friends – or excuse me, who's fighting – Our enemies. Our enemies. Our enemy uh, – oh, how does it go? Sometimes the uh, enemy of your enemy is your friend. Uh-huh. Uh, so we needed to get him out again, once again, hindsight, 2020, it just shows what taking out Saddam did 
to the Middle East, destabilized it. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it, it was the rise of ISIS. And that's what those people wanted. Think about this, you know, and I, I do agree with, with the idea that every human being ultimately wants to be free. But when you're an eight-year-old boy or eight-year-old girl, we'll just use boy in this example uh, because of, because of the, uh, the culture of the folks mm-hmm. that we're talking about uh, in, in that region, and you see your uncle, your dad, whoever else get killed, one by uh, a U.S. bomb and one by an Iranian uh, or a Shia or somebody else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then someone comes up to you and says, hey, it's time to fight. It's time to free our nation. We are going to establish this caliphate. Read this book. It says this. This is the, what you've been grown up being taught your entire life. What are you going to do? You're going to pick up a weapon and you're going to go fight. And you're going to go fight for what you believe in. And so the unfortunate thing is, you know, Christianity obviously didn't grab much of a foothold in Iraq. Right. But, um, you know, that's not the way that we believe. That's not what we believe. But on the flip side, you know, if someone comes into this country and does the same thing, you're going to want to fight too. Absolutely. You know, so so I do believe that everybody wants freedom or they want what they have been taught, what they believe is freedom. Uh, and in this case, it would uh, it's Sharia law for them. But we we have to I think uh, we go in there and just be conscious of conscious of that and have them see, hey, we took out we took out the bad guys and just be conscious of, hey, this is what they are raised with. We have to show them, hey, we came to rescue you and then let them let them uh, go on with with their beliefs and feel good about what we did. Yeah. And, wel- and welcome that. And that's a different, that's a very difficult uh, thing to do. And that goes into the information aspect of, of, of your instruments of power, right? Mm-hmm. So how do we inform and how do we make people understand that we're not the bad guys? It reminds me of like, you know, in Japan, when we went, when we were doing our island hopping campaign, uh, the Japanese had told the locals that we were going to eat their babies, enslave their women, and kill their men. And the women were literally jumping off cliffs, killing with them, with themselves and their babies, because they were worried that the Marines were going to come do that. Because the information part of war, it right now, like y- Ukraine, is a perfect example of that. Mm-hmm. You know, when Putin owns all of the media in Russia, and he's telling the Russian people that there's Nazis in Ukraine and we got to go denazify the Ukraine, then the people think that they have something to fight for. So, yeah, I agree with you 100% in the sense that, you know, if we can inform these people, hey, we're not the enemy, uh, we're here to, we want to work together and prosper. And, and back to my original point, we did that. We had accomplished that in 2007 timeframe, 2008, 2006 in Iraq. The people fi- finally stopped fighting us and started fighting the insurgency. Mm-hmm. And, but, but when we decided to pull out and stop supporting those people who were fighting for themselves, we left them on their own. And at some point, yeah, you have to do that. But once again, I go back to Germany and Japan. We didn't just do that then. You know? So we could have uh, just left a small amount, a small amount of troops kept one uh, kept one military base or a couple of them but have them 
you know, uh, skeleton skeleton staffed, just as a just as a symbolic. Hey, we're here. Symbolic show of strength and support. Yeah, the the right the right amount of people. You know, and oftentimes that gets into your kind of your special ops type guys and mm-hmm. gals. You know, those are the ones who need to be around doing that. It, it, it's like my analogy: the elephant chasing the flea. Chase a flea with a flea. You know uh-huh. what I mean? <laughs> Don't go down the street with as as an elephant trying to catch the fleas because they can't fit in the cracks in the. <laughs> That's right. So as so, tell us about what uh, as you guys watched Afghanistan happen. I mean, you guys, I was you and I were texting back and forth as we're seeing things develop over the last year and a half, and and I'm saying, hey, how are you guys feeling about this stuff? And and I know that you're watching on TV. You see it differently than I do. Because your because your position in the military and your experience that I don't have, um, what are you guys thinking? Well, I can I can tell you, I had a every single one of my buddies uh, that I that were in the military that I talked to, which is a lot of folks, were very very upset. We and and it goes back to what I was talking about earlier. We gave a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, people, humans, money, everything to go help try and nation build there. Whether mm-hmm. that was the right thing or not, that was what we were there to do. And we gave it up because of politics. Because some person put a deadline on a calendar based on something that had happened on that date. And I'm talking about our current president, Biden. And that's why I'm happy to talk to you as I'm retired. But. Uh, he literally put his finger in the chest of our generals and said, we are leaving. And we gave up the, one of the most strategic bases in the world. We built Kandahar in 1960s, in mm-hmm. the 1960s. We built that base because it was a strategic place. Uh, it gets us close to a lot of different areas that we, needed, that, we need, that we might need to get to. And we walked out of that place at night and left all of those people that we had been working with and trying to help, trying to help them save their own country, knowing full well that they were going to be decimated by the Taliban because because we had decided that the political ramifications of us maintaining folks in Afghanistan was not digestible by the American people, so we were going to just leave. It, it's the worst thing I've seen since you see the helicopters picking up people from the top of the fall of Saigon mm-hmm. when they're picking people exactly. up from that building. It was the worst thing ever. And it was very, very demoralizing for every man, woman that I know who fought in Afghanistan. And, and primarily because of the, the same thing that I felt in Iraq, which are the promises that you made to the people that you were going to help them get through this. And all those people are dead. I guarantee you that the Taliban have gone in. They had a. They found out every single interpreter. You know the fact that we weren't going to take the interpreters back. Are you kidding me? Like those people put their lives on the line. They walked around with us in Iraq, full you know, full battle rattle, making sure that. And what I mean by that is you know, helmet and Kevlar, uh-huh. uh, because people were shooting at them more than they were at us. They put they, their lives. They on looked the line. at it, say these guys are traitors. traitors. They're they're, uh, they're supporting the Americans. Yeah. And so, you know, that is uh, – and, and who should be held responsible for that? The president of the United States. It was his call. He didn't listen to his security advisors. He didn't listen to them. And he may gave an order. And I think, and I think about um, positions that 
I think of position. People ask ask me, "Hey, will you support this support this cause?" No, I don't believe in it. And you know, I've, and you know, I've been I've been a big vo- I've been a big voice for 15 years on the radio, and they know that I'm a I'm a, a conservative voice out there. And a couple times they've asked me to 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 support a cause, and I just go, I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. And to me, and I think about military commanders, and I think about I think about hey, when the and, and this is one of the things I, I talk about with my son. I say, hey, happy wife, happy life. But when, when it comes a time when you're, you say, hey, your wife's going to, you just let her make a decision. But when she makes a decision you know is dumb, you say, wait, 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 honey. We're not going to do that, and let me tell you why. And you put your foot down, you're still the man of the house. And when the military commanders have the, have the president say, hey, we're just pulling out. We're going to pull out at night. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't our military commanders say, say, Mr. President, this is the wrong thing to do. We need to get the other people out. You know, women and children first. You know, the, the military needs to be the last people out. We can't just pull out. Yeah, exactly. And, and I know that those things were said by our military leaders. But unfortunately, uh, you know, we work for the commander-in-chief. And <laughs> whether he's got dementia, Alzheimer's, or whatever he has, he's still the commander-in-chief until someone tells us that he's not. And... We we have to follow the orders that were given. In this case, if you don't agree with the orders, then you turn in your four stars and you say, I don't believe what you're doing is right, and I cannot support that. But you find yourself in a catch-22 in that case because you're leading these folks in combat as their general. And so what you don't want to do is let them uh, be hanging out and dry. let you know. Hang on a second. What you don't want to do is just let them, uh, you know, suffer because you don't believe in the decision. You want to try and help them through the process, the problem. In this case, I think that. I think that our. I personally think that our generals should not have done that. They should have turned in their stars. Yeah, you. Uh, you mentioned uh, a conversation you had with uh, David Mattis. Yeah. So when I was at. Uh, National War College, we had uh, General Mattis came and spoke to us, and he spoke to the Marines individually, and we talked about uh, major leadership decisions. And uh, one of the decisions that we talked about, and when do you turn in your stars? When do you stop and say, I don't believe this, I'm not doing this, I'm out? Um, And so he was explaining to us different times and, you know, different experiences that he had had. And when he went into Fallujah the first time, he said, if I go into Fallujah, you better not pull me out because I'm not going back in. And he went into Fallujah, and they pulled him out, and then they made him go back in. And I asked him, I said, hey, why did you go back in? If you honestly believe that and you said that you weren't going to do it, why did you do it? And he said he didn't want to let his Marines down. He didn't want to let someone else lead that charge because he knew how to do it. You know, he was a very amazing tactician, obviously, and strategist when it comes Uh to that kind of stuff. So, um, but at some point, especially with the, with the way that Afghanistan went down, we knew, like, we saw this coming. We saw the entire thing coming. We'd let them know what our timeline was. The, we should have kept Kandahar and we should have used that base to exit from it's, we had everything that we needed there for security Everything that we needed there to defend the base, we had fuel, we had everything else. The guys that I talked to, the the amount of people 
that we put in harm's way, completely uncalculated risk. And one of the things that we do in the military, anytime we do any type of mission, for example, you know, we'll talk about Maverick, Top Gun Maverick later on, you know, uh -huh. we try and manage risk, manage risk to force to the people that we're fighting against the civilians, whatever the risk might be, to make sure that we can get our people home. And the, <laughs> the zero forethought that was put into leaving Kandahar and then trying to evacuate everyone out from an airfield that wasn't protected, that didn't even have fuel for our jets. And so what ends up happening is you got these guys in these big transports, these C-17s that you saw people falling out of mm -hmm. with zero type of uh, you know uh, real interrogations or anything done but for those people who are getting on those airplanes. We just shoved them on the airplanes and took off. And we didn't have no the gas. No vetting or anything. No vetting or anything. We didn't have the gas to get those people where they needed to go. We had to go to an interim base. And they ended up at that interim base, and guys were holding overhead the airfield because there were no places to park the airplanes. They were getting gas. They had to land, vet the people, and then take back off. The amount of military personnel that we put in, in a uncalculated risk by not keeping Kandahar together, evacuating from Kandahar, waiting – fighting, defending Kandahar as much as we needed to, once we got every last American out, then we pull out in the middle of the night like we did before. But what we don't do is give up that strategic base, go to a, a zero plan, and put all those Marines, soldiers, sailors, airmen on the ground in harm's way. And I don't mean to be flippant when I say this, and I, you know, I feel horrible for the families that lost their 13 uh, children uh, during that evacuation. But I got to tell you, we are amazingly lucky that we did not lose a lot more people. Exactly. Watching, watching from here, we're watching go, why do you pull the military out first before you try to get the people out? Why not? That would just be, that just, you don't have to be a military strategist to, to understand that. And I'm watching and going, what are these guys thinking? And I know, and I know that we've got a commander in chief who's, who's you know a sprig of broccoli that he doesn't really know what he's doing. He's making calls based on, based on his uh, his diverse cabinet, not competent cabinet, his diverse cabinet. And you guys on the you guys in the military, you guys know how it's supposed to be done. Yeah, and then what happens after the 13, uh, 13 military folks get killed? We do some errant. UA, UAS strike on a family that we had bad intel on and kill a bunch of civilians. You got to be kidding me. Like, it's just the amazing amount of ineptitude that is in our, with, that, are, that are leading this country today is amazing. We don't have leaders today in our, in our country. We have politicians. We need leaders. We need people who are going to do the right thing for the right reason regardless of what's going on in the media. And the media gave them a lot of guff because, hey, these people died. We're going to go get them. We're going to go get them. And we do a hastily put together attack. And, and unfortunately, we have a, a large amount of collateral damage in that attack and kill a family and a bunch of children. Yeah, well, it's only, it's only four or five or six or seven people. Yeah, if that was your family, 
That's huge. And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier. So we tell them that we're here to protect you and, and help you advance your culture and give you freedom. But now you're the brother of, of the, 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 the female or whoever, their sister who got killed in an errant attack from this country. What do you want to do? You want to kill Americans. Exactly. So, you know, one of the roles I had when I was at, uh, at our weapons school at uh, Mott's One uh, in Yuma was a collateral damage expert for the Marine Corps. I used to run a CDE class, a collateral damage um, estimate class. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the interesting thing about that was that when we look at collateral damage, it's all based – it's primarily based on rules of engagement, law of war, but it's also based on policy. Mm-hmm. And what sets the policy? The ability for for our people at home to digest large numbers of civilians getting killed. I can, I, I'll never forget it. When I went into Iraq the first time dropping bombs in my F-18, they said, you can't kill more than 29 civilians. And I was like, you got to be insane. Like, I don't want to kill civilians. Like, I don't want to kill any civilians. We're going to, you know, we're not trying to hit civilian targets, right? We're trying to hit military targets. Mm-hmm. But at that time... The CD level five, which means it takes presidential approval to conduct that attack, was 29. The number was 29. The next time I went in and on the ground in 05, it went from 10 people to one. Meaning, if you think you're going to have one CIVCAS, civilian casualty, uh-huh. then you need to get approval from someone who's been given. Uh, collateral damage estimate level five, which would normally be the president of the United States unless he pushes that down to someone else. Uh-huh. And then there were all sorts of other different parts to so that. So in other words, you see a you see a high a high value uh, enemy, high high value terrorist. You can't shoot him if he happens to be next to someone you don't want to kill. That's right. Now it depends, right? So there were there were different rules that that governed all of the ROE, and some of those at the time were. Um, you know, hey, if you're in self-defense and you can't egress from the situation, then you're, and it's then you use proportionality to get what you need done mm-hmm. in in for the military interest at that point. Um, now, for some of the high-value targets, they might have what they called human shields with them a lot of the times. Right. So, uh, so sometimes you have to determine whether that's a human shield or whether it's an actual civilian. But those are all very difficult things to do, and it takes tons of intelligence. It takes lots of work to get there to get that done. And you need the you need the guys on the ground that have the intelligence to make decisions, as opposed to to some guy who's eating an ice cream cone in uh, in Delaware. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hey, man, I'm getting chocolate chip today. <laughs> what should we do? Should we kill these people? Well, let's see. They they killed a hundred Americans. Yeah, but eh, it's Sunday. Give them the day off. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's pretty. Uh, it's it's pretty discouraging to see. I mean, because you know you see previous presidents, and I and and of course Trump, I thought was the best president uh, as far as just making making decisions and and having uh, having some real world experience about cause and effect. Um, and you never you never thought he's on vacation. No, whatever happens, whatever happens, he steps up to the mic, makes a decision. People asking questions, he gives them answers. And right or wrong, this is how I see it. Whereas Biden doesn't have any kind of idea. He has to wait till someone tells him what he thinks before he before he makes decisions. And 
you see it, you see what the result is around the world, and we see people dying because of that. So let's talk about let's talk about uh, Ukraine. Um, I thought we saw it all coming. Hey, you know the Russian the Russian military is lining up on the Ukraine border, and that would have been that would have been the time if I was president, and I'll never be president. But uh, if I was, and I'm sure if, if Trump was there, hey, we see what you're doing. Here's the sanctions. You you back the hell off. What were you guys thinking? Yeah, pretty much the same thing. I, I personally, I, I uh, you know, looking at Putin, it seemed more like a gesture. You know, hey, if you do, if you don't, if you don't give us what we need, if you don't start playing right, Ukraine, we're going to go do this. And uh, it's interesting when you study Russia or that whole area, right? Uh, they've been invaded more than anybody, right? So the Ukraine, it's called the Ukraine because mm-hmm. it's actually Ukraine means the forward edge, the front line, the, you know, the outskirts, right? Uh-huh. And they want to, in order to keep Moscow safe, they want to make sure that the borderlands are secure. Uh-huh. And so when they see NATO and the EU and everybody else rolling up right next door, uh, being bombastic with Russia about how we're going to, you know, make Ukraine part of the EU or NATO or whatever, you have to understand that you're putting, you're pushing the dog into the corner and you're not giving him a way out. I'm not saying what he did was right in any way, shape or form. In fact, I would argue that uh, my concern is, are we dealing with a rational actor? And um, and what I mean by that is, uh, are we dealing with someone who is looking looking for an objective in order to keep himself in power and the country in power. Um, you know, even though uh, uh, people think North Korea, uh, Kim out there is, is not a rational actor, he's completely rational. He wants to stay in power. He does things to get things, and, and we give him things and keep him appeased. But when you look at what went on with Ukraine, um, I completely agree with you. The instrument of power that we should have used immediately was economic sanctions before any of this stuff started. Mm-hmm. Open up dialogue and diplomacy with Russia to figure out what is it that you want? Like, what, ex- what exactly do you want? And what he wants, the problem was, is that what he wanted and what he still wants, in my opinion, is he wants the Ukraine to, to work more with Russia than they are with the EU. Um, when you study demographics and you look at the people who live in Ukraine, the folks who are on the east side near Russia, they they don't mind being Russian. You know, the people who live on the west side want to be European or they want to be part of the European Union. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you keep that together? Uh, I think diplomacy, information, and economic uh, instruments of power are what we should have used. I don't think that we should have used military power directly against Russia. Um, in this case. And I think you know, at the time, don't get me wrong, I was still flying F-35s and there's nothing more than I would have loved to do to go whoop their butts because I know we could have done it. I mean, it would have been a turkey shoot. Yeah. So uh, you, we were texting back and forth and you, what, if you were commanding, considering our best interests and, and assuming that it would have even got to war, because I think, uh, uh, I think you you agree that using uh, some economic sanctions before they went in and tell them to back off, that that's what we should have done. But let's assume, hey, that didn't happen. Now they say, now they say, uh, Shrek, um, 
how should we handle this? Well, I mean, this is and this is exactly, you know, and people give the F thirty five a bad rep because they think it's so expensive. In actuality, the price is coming way down on it. Um, that airplane is specifically designed for this type of combat. I mean, it would have been it would it wouldn't have been a turkey shoot. I shouldn't have said turkey shoot, but uh, we we would have lost some aircraft. But I will tell you this. That aircraft is specifically designed to fight that fight right there. Um, I think that what you know, we would have we would put our F-35s up airborne, um, and one of the one of the roles of the F-35 is suppression of any suppression of enemy air defense (SEAD). Seed. The other thing is deed destruction of enemy air defenses. Mm-hmm. So the first thing that would have happened was <clears throat> we would have got our F-35s airborne. We would have got targetable locations on their. SAM systems, and we would have taken out their SAM systems. If they had the audacity to send up any of their fighters, even their latest stealth fighter, I think we would have taken them out. Uh, especially now, hindsight looking 2020, the the stuff that I've seen from the wreckage and the different things, the way that those aircraft are made, um, I'm very confident we would have been able to take out their airborne assets as well. The interesting thing today is to see how sloppily they have organize their airspace. They don't have an integrated air defense system uh, in the sense that, uh, well, we, uh, we... They don't? You mean the Russians? The Russians. Okay. So when I look at the Russians, they have an integrated air defense system that's primarily surface-to-air missiles. The problem is, is that they don't integrate very well with their other aviation assets. So what you end up seeing are these very, very, uh, you know, uh, stealth aircraft that they have, their, their latest, their most capable aircraft are having to fly low altitude to stay out, to not get shot down by their own missiles, mm-hmm. you know. And what that's doing, it's putting them in a what, what I it's called a man pad, a man portable air defense system, um, man pad, and that is a surface to air missile that can be shoulder mounted. You see them, you know, when you watch the movies, you see the guy reach up or gal and shoot the missile off their shoulder, and it goes uh-huh. chase the airplane around, right? Most of those are heat-seeking missiles uh, that they fire. And so the Russians are getting their, you know, their top-line fighters shot down by man pads. Um, I, I, just think it's, I just think it's hilarious, kind of. The, the way that we would have fought this is stand off precision weapons uh, until we can beat them down and beat down their IADs. Um, anything that they launched airborne would have been taken out as well. Um, with our air-to-air missiles and stuff like that. Uh, and then behind us, or in front of us, we would have had fourth-gen fighters, F-18s, uh, you know, non-stealth aircraft to kind of be our missile trucks downrange. Uh-huh. And we would have uh, – I, I have no doubt in my mind that we would have decimated them. And the Russians would have been pushed out how long? Well, based on what it, you know, based on, you know, when, when they were all stuck in the mud in that quagmire, when they tried to come in from the north side, you remember that? When they mm-hmm. first went in, yep, they bought all those Chinese tires. Did you ever hear that story? I thought that that was hilarious. Mm, I'm not sure. Apparently, they bought their, their tires from China, and all the tires went bad when they got in the mud. They started to deflate and stuff like that. Oh, I just yeah. thought that that was hilarious. But, um, yeah, when they got stuck in that quagmire, holy cow, that would have been a turkey shoot. That would have been something worse that was than worse than the highway of death that, that we remember from Iraq. Yep. That would have been that would have been that would have been fourth gen stuff after we took out their IADs going in there to take all those aircraft out. All those so they're all out. they're all stuck. We just send one plane over there. I mean a B fifty two, you know, you get in some of our big bombers that go in there and just 
lay waste. Um, you know, what we've done now is we've given the, the Ukrainian army the latest weaponry that, they, that, that is on the shelf from every country around the world. And do uh, they know how to fly them? Well, so what they're they're not using uh, they're not using F thirty fives. They're not you know the and this is kind of a, you know I'm not trying to sell the B, but when you look at what the Russians did, they did a pretty good job of taking out the airfields first, mm-hmm. so that the Ukrainian MiGs couldn't get airborne to go fight against them, right? Uh, I mean, so the the, the beautiful thing about the F thirty five B is that I don't need a big airfield to take off from. I can take off, you know, and land in about 1,500 feet or so. So, you, unless they blew up every single 1,500 foot area on our, on every single road, we wouldn't be able to fly F-35s. Otherwise, in the F-35B, which is the the Marine Corps variant, the one that uh-huh. hovers, uh, would have been a perfect uh, aircraft to to be able to get in there and do the mission. The A and the C would have been very capable as well, but they would have had to launch from further away. Okay, but of course, you still have to. Whenever you land, you have to fuel up. That's right. You got to get gas. So you got to have you got to have places to, to get gas. That's right. The logistics train that goes with that uh, is is fairly heavy. I mean, you know, we're talking about thirteen thousand pounds of gas per aircraft. So you think the Russian army they just don't have logistics? They just don't understand the art of war? Uh, I think that you know what I mean. When you look back to us when we invaded Iraq, we went so fast that we outpaced our logistics chain as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the Russians thought that they would be in Kiev very, uh, you know, within a day or two. Mm-hmm. So the logistics train that they had in place was definitely not enough and definitely ran out. Then they got themselves in a quagmire where they couldn't get the logistics in. And, yeah, so their logistics plan was bad. Poor planning. Mm-hmm. Poor planning. And then they're fighting against people who know what they're fighting for. They're fighting for their lives and they're fighting for their country. And they have – and the Russian fighters – don't really know why they're there. That's right. They interviewed that one guy. He thought he was on an exercise or something like that. Right? Uh-huh. And I mean, and like you said earlier, hey, they, they're telling us that there's Nazis over there. We're going to fight them. And they get over there and realizing that they're not they're not fighting Nazis. They're they're fighting people that just want to protect their home. That's right. And so when you look at that, when you look at the invader who doesn't know why they're there, compared to the person who knows why they're there, defending their family, mm-hmm. uh, then who's going to fight harder? And, you know, you're always going to fight for the person to your left and right when you're in combat. But when you're fighting for your home and your family who are 100 meters behind you, you're going to fight like a rabid dog. Yep. Yep. I can I can I could I could feel it. I could feel it as you know, as you're as you're watching and you watch. And of course, I talk about in my book how, you know, you 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 learn from the experience of others by by, you know, learning from other people, watching movies and. And you assume that you assume that the movies have some some sort of uh, truth to them. Although we'll talk about Top Gun Maverick uh, shortly here. Um, you know, one thing I'd like to throw in with the Ukraine piece, um, real quick, uh, is you know who's watching this the most the most closely is China. China, because China and Taiwan, and we have. Right now in our military, China is what we call the pacing threat. We are going to defend Taiwan. We also told the Ukrainians we would defend them in 1991 when they gave up their nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. We've helped them out, but we haven't defended them in any way, shape, or form. Um, but, you know, we have an agreement with, with uh, Taiwan uh, that you know, we will help defend them. We've given them tons of military 
uh, equipment, aircraft, everything that they need to defend themselves. But, you know, quantity has a quality of its own. And, you know, the Chinese have 1.5 billion people in their country, and 1 billion of them, I think, are in the military and the, and the police force. And I don't know if, if you're the one that pointed this out or, or one of my other military friends. You can't – it's almost impossible to win to win a fight from the from – the, you know, if you're fighting, fr- fighting from the water against your enemy who's fighting from the shore, it's hard to win that battle. Yeah, it's very difficult, especially today. You know, the uh, – the, when you look at um, – there's a great book. It's called The Kill Chain, and it talks about – you know, where we are with today's military and where China is. And um, they know. They know the second that a carrier leaves the port, you know, and they try and find them. I mean, back in the day when we were in World War II, you know, the hardest thing was finding the enemy ships, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're still pretty stealthy when we roll around in the ocean, but as soon as we decide we're going to go into combat, you have to get close enough to get your fighters and your bombers in there to get done what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. You have to set up that logistics chain. And that's the problem that we're dealing with in our military today is exactly how are we going to defend Taiwan when we have to fight from so far away? Um, So, you know, that becomes a very different thing. That being said, um, the Chinese are playing Go. They're playing three-dimensional chess, Mm -hmm. and we're playing checkers. You know, you look at our policies, they change. Xi Jinping, when he wakes up in the morning, he doesn't care about what Biden thinks. He doesn't care about what we're doing. When he, when he wakes up in the morning, he was worried about the other 0.5 billion Chinese that don't work for him. And are they going to try and upset his presidency? Are they going to try and take over the government? He's worried about the people in his country. And so, you know, we find ourselves today in a, in a place where the global economy is – rapidly, you know, falling apart. And and that's great concern across the board. And if the Chinese people can't eat, are they going to revolt against China? Does China decide to go in against Taiwan because they think that that's the best way to to create this 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 fervor, this uplift, this you know, get let's get into a war and that way people won't think about what's going on at so home. So you bring you bring that up and it makes me think about uh what President Trump was doing. Let's bring all these jobs back. You know, why are the Chinese people smarter than us? Are they more capable than us? No, they're not. They just have less regulations. And it's cheaper for Apple to build iPhones in China. And it's cheaper for all these countries. It's cheaper to buy this stuff from China because they don't have as much regulation. But they're killing us economically because we're buying all that all that stuff from them. I think the American people would be be feel a lot safer and be very willing to pay an extra an extra ten dollars for an iPhone or an extra five cents for a shirt or something that you and I think that chokes out chokes them out economically and as long as we're winning economically we're winning all around I agree I agree and that's that's where it goes back into our national security interests you know is that part of our national security interests and you bring up I'll give you a quick example um, I got family up in New Hampshire and, uh, and I'm rolling around with these loggers to see how they do their business up in mm-hmm. the woods in New Hampshire. And it is amazing to see the, the, the equipment that they're using to do the logging and everything else. And I'm asking them, I say, hey, what's, so what's going to happen to these logs? I see you, know, you got all these semi-trucks filled up with these logs. He goes, we're going to take them into Canada. I'm like, what do you mean? Meanwhile, there's people up and down the river in New Hampshire that are all out of business. There's paper mills out of business. There's 
furniture companies. Ethan Allen used to be there out of business. Mm -hmm. Nobody's working. Everybody's on food stamps. It's horrible, right? And we're going to take that wood that we just cut down from our own land. We're going to drive it across the border. Create Canadian jobs. Negative. No. We're going to put it, but we have to take it to Canada to put it on a boat to send it to China so that they can turn those logs into whatever they're going to turn them into, put them back on a boat, ship them back to Canada, and come across our border, that border, for free because of the North American uh, the Free Trade Agreement, uh-huh. NAFTA. And so how amazing is that? We're killing jobs in, in that area where those people used to work and make you know beautiful furniture, all the things that we need, and now we're outsourcing that to the Chinese. Because so it's cheaper to ship it stuff. over there, let them, let them do it and ship it back. But they have slave labor. I mean, imagine that. Imagine how much money does it cost to fuel everything. To, and opportunity cost alone, you bought the wood, now you got to hold on to it for how long? Mm-hmm. To ship it across the, around the world to get it. How much cheaper is that labor? It's a lot cheaper. And you know what? When we look at ourselves and we look at, you know, uh, the things that we believe are fair and righteous, to, you know, how do we want to treat our people? They don't. They're going to put you in a sweatshop and make you sweat and get, get whatever done that you're going to get done. But that's the difference between who we're dealing with. And you're right. We need to bring those jobs home. When you look at what's going on right now, you know, just real quick on the economy or, you know, the global stage, where does the EU get their oil from? You were talking about some of the things that Trump from Russia. Said. Yeah. And he made a statement. Everybody uh, said that he was crazy. He said, you're getting your oil from your enemy. And everybody says, oh, it's that, that's not true, blah, blah, blah. Everything's fine. Guess what? It could be a cold winter in Europe yep. if Russia decides to turn off that oil. That is amazing. Meanwhile, in our own country, once again, I'll use New England as an example, <laughs> We are rationing the amount of home heating fuel that we are going to allow people to pay three times more for this winter because we're not drilling in our own flipping country. We have more oil in this country to survive this country, even this expansion, for over 400 years. Yep. And oh, by the way, if we were shipping that oil to the EU, they wouldn't be as dependent on Russia. And uh, uh, it would make jobs in this country. And it would reduce the price of gas, and inflation would start to come down. But we have to do whatever the politicians think is right because of some some 16-year-old who wants to have an EV vehicle. And don't get me started on the EV vehicles. I mean, I love the concept, but holy cow. How much does it cost to make one of those things in earth materials – and fuel oil and everything else to get those things where they're going to be. Exactly. And my, and my, and my thought was, you know, uh, Tesla, Tesla started out pushing this thing in General Motors, Ford, they're all doing it now. There would be a natural, a natural evolution to people say, hey, this is cool for me. You know, I'm, all, I'm, I'm doing all this traveling in town. It's, it's convenient for me to just plug my, my, my vehicle in overnight at my house. It's, it's cheaper. It's more convenient. And, and there will be a certain amount of evolution into that. You can't force it. No. You can't force it. We don't have the, the electric grid for it. That's right. It would slowly build up, and it would slowly build, in, and it would happen naturally. And they're trying to push it because they're trying to save the earth 
somebody somebody put on there, hey, in the in the 1600s, uh, uh, Plymouth Rock was at sea level. Today, it's still at sea level. So, what are they talking about? <laughs> well, the my the funniest thing I think about EV stuff is where does the energy come from? Oh, it comes from the outlet in the wall. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Where does that energy come from? Is it coming from a nuclear power plant that you detest because it's so clean and can work make so much power, or is it coming from the coal? You know the, the the coal mill that's that's making electricity. As long as, long as you don't see the smoke here, it's clean. Yeah, right. Yeah, I was uh, stuck in traffic uh, driving my Corvette out out to Glendale this morning and saying, "Hey, I'm behind some Tesla that has the license plate that says clean energy," and I go, "You're such a Democrat. <laughs> get out of the, get out of the way so I can so I can uh, open my Corvette up and uh, make it happen." So I have some I have some friends. I have some friends. So I, I live I live near March Air Force Base. So so I have a ton of military military retired. We we support the military uh, in multiple in multiple ways. We've we've done all kinds of stuff for our, our military guys, and uh, in we created a, a a charity a charity organization, and we raise money to to build a smart home with Gary Sinise Foundation. We donated track chairs with the Independence Fund. Uh, we raised money with the boot campaign, How I Met Joey Jones. Um, we remodeled the VFW. Uh, hey, the VFW's air conditioning's out, and nobody's nobody wants to go in there. Hey, we sent over some contractors and said, hey, 24 hours I had the money raised to put two air conditioners on there. I'm in support of all the all the military guys. I think that we don't appreciate them enough. They certainly don't get paid enough, and so we're all there. Um, I have some friends retired from uh, March Air Force Base, and and we're talking politics one night, and and I say, you know, how do you, how do we be comfortable with this? You know, we're the strongest country, but we're watching we're watching we're watching things go on across the world, and and we watch we watch Biden bring in his his diverse cabinet. We got to make sure we have enough black people, enough females, and enough. Trans, transgenders and enough homosexuals in there. I say, you know what? I just assume him get the most competent cabinet and protect everybody. You know, it does, you know, regardless, it doesn't matter how many how many of of what you are, but let's bring in the most competent people to lead our country. And one of one of this couple said said to me, she goes, you know what? It doesn't matter what we think. Our military guys are trained to do what they're trained to do, so it's all going to be fine. And I brought that up, and I want you to expand on how do you feel about that theory. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there. The uh, <clears throat> first, let me start with some of the diversity stuff real quick. Um, I, you know, the military takes a lot of hits for you know issues that we have with whether it's sexual assault, equal opportunity, whatever it might be. Um, but I will tell you this: you know, if you look at the demographic that's in the military today. Um, you know, 18 to 26 year olds, right? Uh, you know, that's that's an age where you know uh, where people men's brains aren't fully formed until they're about 25 ish. Mm-hmm. Their frontal lobe. Uh, women form a little bit earlier, but you're really dealing with uh, uh, very immature folks, and you're trying to make these people. You're trying to teach these people how to wage war on an enemy. Um. We take society, and I'm going to speak for the Marine Corps. We take society and we make Marines. A Marine should not be like society. 
That individual needs to know how to go kill things and break stuff, okay? And, you know, how does that relate to society? We make professional warriors. We make people who are professionals in all aspects of life. And we train them the best we can on what equal opportunity is, what sexual harassment, sexual assault, why it's not okay, why we're all brothers and sisters in the same uniform fighting for the same thing for our beautiful shining city on top of the hill, right? Yep. And so at the lowest level, I will tell you that we get very, very smart individuals who join uh, our military today. Um, My concern with our military today is not is not the people who are in it at the lower levels. My concern are the politicians who are trying to make force things into the military that don't belong there. Every individual that joins the military needs to be deployable. You need to be able to go deploy and wage war against the enemy. Now, that could be behind a desk, uh, you know, work on a computer in a cyber uh, room, or it could be on a ship somewhere else doesn't necessarily mean like in the Marine Corps where you're going to carry an 80-pound rucksack for 25 miles and then go to combat. Mm-hmm. Um, but it means that you need to be able to be deployable. And a lot of people can't get in the military for different reasons, you know, health reasons and different things like that. But when we look at, um, you know, the transgender thing, if somebody joins the military as a male or a female, that's fine. Whatever happened before that, I don't care. But when you're in the military and you're a male or a female, that's what you are. To have our government and the military change you to something else after you've joined, I don't think is right. And I don't think that's a good use of taxpayers' money. I don't think that's a good use of creating the most powerful military on the planet. That's not what we need to be focused on. What we need to be focused on is training for combat every single day. Um, And I think that that's what's happening at the lower levels. What concerns me the most are are the people at the higher levels. If our society was half as good as our military is when it comes to equal opportunity, racism, uh, sexual assaults, harassment, everything else, our country would be a thousand times better than it is today. Because we hold people accountable. When people make bad decisions, they are held accountable. Unlike in our society today, at the highest levels people are not held accountable for bad things that they do across the, that spectrum that I just mentioned. Exactly. So, uh, so how's that? How's are that we ready to fight? Yeah, exactly. Go ahead. Are we ready to fight? Um, let me, let me throw one other thing on there. So I was in the Marine Corps for 27 years. So for the first four years, we were not in combat, about four and a half ish. Right. We were working with Vietnam era gear, we were working with old stuff, whatever. The As we got, you know, 2001, I was on Wake Island when 9-11 happened. I'll mm-hmm. never forget it. We were going Transpac uh, to Japan for UDP. And I thought to myself, holy cow, am I ready to go to war today? And I probably wasn't, but I felt like I was close to it. I was a brand-new guy in the squadron. I'd been there for about seven or eight months. But when we did go to war... I mean, I can remember taking guys out on night missions, getting sh- shot at by air-to-ground, uh, surface-to-air uh, missiles, surface-to-air uh, gunfire, uh, you know, what we call AAA, anti-aircraft fire, mm-hmm. and coming back and saying, hey, man, you did a great job tonight, awesome, you know, good hits on the target. We took out a convoy of 15 vehicles. It was a great success for us that night. 
um, and you know we held the the uh, artillery pieces away from getting to the to the Brits um, down south. But in the end, he was like, "Yeah, man, that was the first live bomb I've dropped." And I was like, "You got to be kidding me, man!" Like, and we fixed that. We fixed that. I hadn't dropped a joint direct attack munition, which is a GPS guided bomb. I've only dropped one laser-guided bomb, an actual laser-guided bomb, off of my F-18 before I went into combat. Mm-hmm. And I would carry two JDAM, two of these GPS-guided bombs, and two of these laser-guided bombs. And we had to, we weren't learning it for the first time. We'd studied it. We'd made sure we were ready. But bottom line is, is that you were you were not proficient in using those weapon systems. Today, today, my concern as we roll out of this military or this war footing that we've been on. For you know, since two thousand one, for the last what's the public math on that? Almost twenty years now. Mm-hmm. Um, that we are not going to continue to fund our military to be as ready as they need to be. And so my concern is, at the highest levels, our politicians and our generals need to make sure that each and every one of those Marines, under, uh, Marines, military personnel understand that their number one duty is to kill people and break stuff, and they need to make sure that they're trained to go do that so that we can have the sharpest sword on the, on the planet. Um, I'm not, I'm not as concerned with the young, with the, you know, let's call it majors on down, Lieutenant colonels on down, colonels on down, colonels, you start getting the lobotomy, uh, as you get up towards general. But, um, I think that we're, I think that we are, we are on a safe footing as far as being ready for combat today. I don't think we're on the best footing that we could be on it. Uh, I think that there are a lot of things when we talk about the politics, when we talk about COVID. I mean, I personally, one of the Marines that worked for me was a lieutenant colonel. He was, this guy was a rock, he still is a rock star. He was on the way to becoming a general officer, no doubt in my mind. Uh, Decided he didn't want to take the COVID shot. They took away the command that he was about to go take over. He's been sitting in, you know, legal limbo now. For over, you know, since all this stuff happened over mm-hmm. a year ago. A couple years. And uh, he's just waiting to get out of the Marine Corps. We lost a great, great warrior because of some political decision. They wanted us to take an experimental use shot. I mean, you know, when, when the politics get that involved in our military and our military leaders don't push back and go, hey, you know, we're going to do this. And these are, these are the, health, the healthiest, strongest machines we have. Yeah. In the, you know, people that, that are well-trained they're healthy they're and they you know they're they're kind of isolated a bit from society and and all of a sudden hey take this shot stick this needle in your arm or and i know that i know that you guys take all kinds of vaccinations you're going to all all kinds of places over over the across the across the globe yeah i mean we don't know what's in this we don't know what's in this vaccine and we know one thing it doesn't do it doesn't prevent covid that's right. It, technically, it's not even a vaccine, right? A uh-huh. vaccine would 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 stop you from getting the cold, and it would stop you from transmitting the cold. In this case, it doesn't do either. Exactly. <laughs> we don't. We won't know until you know a second head starts growing out of the side of our neck. Right. Uh, what it did, except for uh, you know, I didn't. I didn't take it. I didn't take it because I'm not going to find out. Yeah, I had to take it, so I took it. But. But, you know, that's, that's my main concern about our military today is the political influence that, uh, that has been pushed down. We, you know, we can't have a woke military. We can have a military that is based on a meritocracy, that is based on, the, you know, the people who do well and achieve 
get promoted. And that's what I see. That's what I've seen in my 27 years. And I know that there are different examples of things that didn't happen. But I would ask you and anyone listening today to look back at their own company and their own corporation or any place that they've worked or as to whether they think it was perfectly um, – if, if the equal opportunity was perfect across the board, if there was no racism, if there was no uh, you know, uh, gender issues, if there was no sexual assault, sexual harassment. Unfortunately, I think that those things are much more prevalent in society. And that's what we have to beat out of these – not beat, but that's what we have to take out of these people when they join the military. Is we have to we have to take society out of them and make them a professional, and that's what the toughest job is, I think. Yeah, we had a uh, we had a leadership program at our at at my company a few years back, and we had a couple of uh, former Navy SEALs teaching it. And he said, you know what, the the SEALs don't create superhuman athletes because all these guys that 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 try out are superhuman athletes. He goes, what we do is we, we take a, from 1,000 and we get them down to 25 guys that can survive this because we're, we're training super, you know, super teams, guys that will, that will watch, watch their, their, their teammates' backs and will create perfect synergistic machines for war. Now that Every single one of these guys that wants to be a SEAL are already a superhuman, superhuman athlete, athletic kind of a person, and we're training them for that. And now we bring in all these all these new rules of wokeness and and all these other all these other distractions. What does that do? Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. I mean, you know, and it's funny because I think I've rolled into Top Gun, the Maverick movie that we wanted to talk about. Uh-huh. We talk about a good team, um, but I agree, hundred percent. And you know, the when I when I used to go walk my flight line at. Uh, when I was in UMO or when I was in Miramar or wherever I was, you know, I'd see everybody working together, one team, one fight. When I joined the Marine Corps, you know, in 95, when I went through OCS was 94, 95, uh, officer candidate school, uh, which is kind of like our officer's boot camp, if you will, for the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Um, I was taught that there are dark green Marines, light green Marines, and Marines, and female Marines, and all these different kinds of Marines. It was probably 2000 or something like that, that that completely left our vernacular, and we just had Marines. And the beautiful thing about that was, it's just like America. Why do we have all these different Americans? Why don't we just have Americans? Americans. Right? And the fact is, is that you're an American, I'm an American. You know, I don't care if you're black, white, orange, purple, whatever. It doesn't matter to me. In the Marine Corps, and and this was a tough one to swallow, so to speak, when I was, uh, when, you know, the whole uh, don't ask, don't tell thing was getting turned off, Mm -hmm. we would ask the Marines, and I'll never forget this. We sat in a big auditorium, the commandant of the Marine Corps came and spoke with us, and he said, hey, how many of you in here care if the Marine next to you in the foxhole is gay or lesbian? And like five hands went up, and they were all like, old salty gunnies or whatever, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. The young Marines didn't care. How many of you Marines would care if, you know, the person to your left or right that you were working with in the office was gay or lesbian? Zero hands went up. Nobody cared. The, f- the fact is, is that, like, what you do in the bedroom shouldn't affect how you go to combat or how you work or how you, how you execute your job or what you're, you know, whether you believe that's okay or not. But when you create this team and you're all Marines, then you're going to fight together. 
and I'll tell you, the interesting thing, you know, for my last command tour was the majority of the sexual assault problems that we had were either male on male or female on female. Um, because they're protected. So, no, no. Because, well, they're protected, so they feel like they can. Yeah, maybe that's the right answer. I, I maybe I, I kind of get that too. Yeah, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But you, you're saying that they're protected. They feel like yeah, they're they're, they're protected. So, so hey, they're special people. If you if you're gay, you're you're special. You're 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 to be treated a little nicer than straight people. And you know, it's whatever whatever we do. When Barack Obama became president, hey, he was elected by by white Americans and black Americans. And he should have gone out there and said, hey, this proves that there's no more racism, that America is not a racist country. He should have said that that removes all the limits for for everybody of no matter what your color is. Instead, it was, hey, well, let's get some payback. And now it's like, hey, now you're now you're special if you're black. And if you're a white person, you you have to uh, you have to apologize, apologize to society because, hey, I'm white. I was born white. I have white privilege. Same thing now with gay. Hey, if you're gay, now you're special. And we can't, we can't, we can't disagree with what Barack Obama said or anything he did because now you're a racist, and now you can't, you can't disagree with anything that has to do with with alternative lifestyles because now you're now you're a homophobe. That's right. No, that's a great point. That's a great point. I never thought of it like that. That's an awesome point. And uh, in fact, yeah, I, I'm not going to get into particulars, but uh, an individual didn't want to come forward after being assaulted because that individual was concerned that they might, everyone might think that he is that alternative lights lifestyle, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Yep. But um, yeah, so uh, I don't know where we were going from there. Oh, we we're talking about a team. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, you know, I think that what you see at the lowest levels are good teams working together. And I, you know, even in the, in the Marine Corps, when I go up and down the flight line, I see, I see Marines of all different backgrounds working together and for a common mission. So when we talk about um, going back to what my neighbor said, hey, everything's going to be fine because the military guys are trained to do what they're going to do, and they're going to they're going to do it. That's not a concern. I mean, is that is should we not be concerned about what's happening from leadership into the military, or that's that's a that's a uh, an illusion. Well, I think the biggest concern that we should have are our politicians, the people who are who are guiding our military, who are making our military do what they what uh, what they believe society wants us to do. It goes back to my my original point is that we take people from society and we make them warriors, and we need to continue to do that because people from society, people who have not been trained how to go. Um, do God's work around the globe uh, won't be able to do it. It's a tough thing to do to train somebody to to uh, to, to kill people, right? And and so what you need to do is make sure that the individuals that we bring in in the Marine Corps are ready to do that. And my concern is what you're getting after right now is the woke stuff that's going on around this country today. Is that having an impact on our military? Maybe in an ancillary way, I do think it impacts uh, the amount of training that we're able to get because we're focused on the wrong thing oftentimes. But I will tell you that as a commander for the last two years, unfortunately, the, the, one of the biggest things that I had to deal with were all those things that we're talking about right now. Uh, from, a, 
from a woke standpoint. Like, oh, so-and-so said this and blah, blah, blah. It's like, hey, I'm not here to, to you know, to, to be daddy in this situation. Like, you guys figure it out. You're grown adults. You know what I mean? Like, why, why am I hearing about this? Oh, because you have to do something about it. Because this isn't right. It offended me. I'm sorry I offended you. Somebody else is going to offend you when they put a bullet inside you because you weren't ready to go fight. Exactly. Here's fill out your hurt feelings report. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, my sergeant major and I, uh, we used to talk about that all the time. It was like, man, we got to get back to making Marines and not, not allowing society into this uh, military. Uh-huh, exactly. And it's and it goes to the America. Hey, for hey, send us send us your uh, your 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 hurt and your and all your all your downtrodden and all whatever it says on the on the Statue of Liberty that I'm not thinking about right now while the microphone's on. Um, you know, it used to be that we brought people from all all areas of the globe, and they melted into American culture. What's changed now is, hey, we have to respect their culture. They want to come here and change our culture to, hey, if you want to live in America, you come here. These, this is how we do things in America. And, you know, you came here because you didn't want to be at your other place, at whatever country you were in. Don't come here and try to change us. That's right. We're, we're changing for the 0.7% that get on media. Exactly. And, and it's the exact same in the military. Like, we, we take society, we make Marines. We take... Chinese, African, whatever descent you are, and you come to America, and you should just be an American. You shouldn't be an African-American. You shouldn't be whatever. You should be proud of your heritage. That's fine. I don't have any problems with that. But in reality, if you don't want to be here, leave. If you exactly. want to try and change this place, then go go back to where you wherever it is you came from. And Because right now, there are hundreds of thousands of people crossing that border today to get a piece of this American pie. Because they believe that this is the shining city on top of the hill. The people that I talk to, you know, who, who have immigrated here, came here for the specific reason because they wanted to be Americans. And the people here who are spoiled Americans don't have any idea what it's like to live in a third world nation where no one cares about your hurt feelings report. They're just going to take your money and your stuff. Exactly. And who knows, who knows who's coming across now? Okay, yeah. so let's let's talk about some fun stuff. All right. So Top Gun Maverick was a huge hit at the box office this summer. I personally loved it. Um, I you know what I loved about it versus 1986. 1986, uh, you know Maverick's coming in. It's all competition. It's Maverick and it's Ice. It's Viper. It's Jester. It's uh, all the all these guys, and they're in the they're in the Indian Ocean fighting some you know doing some conflict. They come up on a MIG. Uh, they go to Top Gun. They they train. They have this competition. You know, uh, Maverick gets the girl, and then they then he he loses his partner, and then uh, all of a sudden they go back to some conflict in the Indian Ocean. We don't know what they're fighting for. All it is is we know it's a dogfight. This time, uh, he's coming in to to train these guys. This is how I see it as a as a civilian movie watcher. Um, he he's bringing in to, to teach some of these new guys how to push themselves beyond uh, what they think they're they're that they can do and beyond what uh, beyond what they know their machines can do, and they're very specific about what the the what the the strategy is to to get these uh, to get this uh, nuclear site, and we know specifically what they're you know before they go in we we've seen them train for this. You know, go in, go under the the surface-to-air missiles, 
go up over this hill, do a inverted inverted thing to get down to stay low below the radar, go bomb this thing, get out, then you dogfight your way out. We know specific. We don't know where it is. We don't, we just assume they're in the Middle East, and um, and to me, you knew when they actually went in what they were trying to do and what the strategy was. It was exciting to watch. Is it anywhere near reality? <laughs> so I I loved both Top Guns. I think that they're both great. I like Top Gun Maverick way better than I did the first one. As did I. E- exactly same reason that you're saying. Um, and, uh, and it, it was a great movie and that's what it was, was a movie. Um, you know, the, the reality behind it, before we get into the reality behind it, the realism, like, uh, you know, when you, so let's take it, let's take a quick snapshot of what Top Gun is. So Top Gun is our Navy weapons school. It's where we send our best and brightest and we make them instructors. Okay. In actuality, you know, they might be a little bit cocky, but <laughs> the machismo, if you will, that was in both Top Guns does not exist or should not exist or wouldn't exist if good commanders were in charge because they'd squash that. What we what we try and do up at Top Gun when guy goes to Top Gun is we take him or her and take them from where they are to where they need to be as an instructor. First, we got to be able to make sure that they can do the mission that they're trained to do. And so, yeah, when you want to talk about when I graduated from Top Gun and I left, I, man, it's all downhill from there. Like, I was the best F-18 pilot that I could have been in my life at that point. The training was tremendous. Um, and teaching me how to instruct and pull out the learning points and teaching me how to be the keeper of the training rule, rules, what we call the training rules. Uh-huh. Um, I, I got a long story. I got a funny story I could tell you. Uh, at a different time, but uh, how I almost got t- kicked out was being too aggressive uh, during during some of our one v ones when we fight, uh, you know, one aircraft against one aircraft. And one of the things that I learned was that hey, look, you're the keeper of the training rules, and what the training rules are are it's a methodology of keeping you safe. The hard deck they talk about the hard deck uh-huh. all the time, right? The reason the hard deck is there is because if you depart the aircraft and lose control below that certain altitude, generally it's 5,000 feet above the floor, whether the floor is, so if the floor is, let's say, let's say you're fighting in, you know, Arizona where it's about a thousand foot, uh, um, ground level is about thousand foot MSL. Well, we would make the, the hard deck 6,000 feet. Cause you'd add that to that altitude, right? Mm-hmm. So it keeps you 5,000 feet above the ground is the bottom line or the water. And what that enables you to do is if something happens and you get down there and you're too slow and you lose control of the aircraft, basically it gives you just enough time to eject out of the aircraft safely. So they love to use the hard deck at Top Gun. That is a bad thing. We do not go below the hard deck for any way, any reason. And the ramifications that, uh, that, uh, that Maverick saw from going below the hard deck are real. And you, you would get in trouble just like that. That would be a very bad thing to do. Uh, but up at Top Gun, we have, so we hit, we have these training rules, right? Um, generally there are blocks. There's different things that we do to keep aircraft safe. The way that they came to the engagements, you know, popping up between two aircraft, uh, that not that close. It would never happen. You always try and keep your passes outside of 500 feet, especially if the other aircraft does not have situational awareness to you. If they don't know that you're there, you don't know which way they might turn left or right, and then you have a mid-air collision. That would be bad. Right. But So we take our best and bite us. We train them to go back to the fleet 
and train the next best and brightest. And so the individuals that go through Top Gun have got to be humble professionals, quiet professionals. The guy or gal that sits in the ready room, you can come up to and ask a question about whatever. They'll teach it to you. But you know when you go strap on that F-18 or that F-35 that if you're not the top of your game, they're going to whoop your butt. And so those are the type of people that we want to to come to Top Gun, to, to go back to the fleet and train so that we can make everybody better. But as far as movies go, I thought it was awesome. Um, so let's talk about what was it realistic. And like I said, it was a great movie. But today, you know, we talked about invading uh, the Russia invading Ukraine and how we would have fought that. It's the same thing we would have done here. The, the whole concept that the GPS jamming would have taken out the F-35s is ridiculous. But it, it helped make the movie so that they could make two-seat aircraft so that they could get their, uh, their, their actors inside of an F-18 because the F-35 only has one seat. Right. So it would have been very difficult to try and film that. The filming of the movie was tremendous. Like the, the, the action shots and all those things were amazing. And the low levels that they flew, somebody asked me, they're like, are those real? I was like, yeah. I know specifically many of the low levels that they flew, but some of them, one of them we call the Million Dollar Ride. It's up, uh, goes up through the mountains up near from Seattle, Portland, over there in that area. And it's just amazing. And uh, the first time I saw the movie, I was like, I know that. I've been there. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But uh, it was really exciting to watch that part. But that mission that they went and fought is tailor-made for an F-35. Tailor-made. Like, we would have taken out all of those surface-to-air missile systems uh, first um, or jammed them or done something to make it so that we could get in and take out that weapon system or those that nuclear facility. Uh -huh. Now, the low-altitude tactics that they use, uh, a lot of people today believe that since we have stealth and we have all this Gucci stuff, we don't need to do low-altitude tactics. I'd argue that we need to keep every arrow in our quiver sharp and ready to go at any time because uh, we there is a point where we will need to do low-altitude tactics. So the idea of coming in low, uh, below their radar, below their surface-to-air missile systems is legit, and it's something we used to train to a long time ago. And I shouldn't say a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago. Uh, and we're still getting back. Now we're kind of getting back to doing that in the F-35 as well. Mm -hmm. um, but to think that that canyon you remember earlier i talked to you about man portable air defense systems uh -huh. yeah that thing there would have been what we call visual observers in there they would have known that that is a weak entry point and they would have defended that from low altitude tactics i think just my personal uh, opinion on that um one of the things that they did bring up a lot in the movie was the man in the box did you do you remember that when he uh -huh. said so they said that a ton in this movie. And they didn't say it. I don't know if they ever said it at all in the first Top Gun. I need to go back and watch it. But They, they, didn't, they didn't bring it up in specifics, but you, you hear, heard it. I've watched it about six times now. And, and I start to – this is why I watch movies over and over because I start to notice little things that you watch it one time in the theater and, and you just don't you – don't, you don't catch that little stuff. Yeah. And I know that there's, there's tons and tons of thought that's put into every little every – little every little comment in there and so I, you miss them so i like to watch movies over and over and i go oh okay i caught that i caught this so i just to explain where that quote comes from that's from uh baron von richthofen the red baron uh-huh and in world war one he said the quality of the box matters little 
Success depends upon the man who sits in it. And and I think, or man or woman today, right? I don't care. Uh-huh. But, uh, but the fact is, is that's true. That is totally true today, just as much as it was yesterday. If you got a great aircraft like the F-35 and you're not trained how to use it properly, why the guy in the F-5 or the, you know, the low-end fighter is going gonna, is gonna to take it to you or the gal in one of those aircraft. It's not the plane, it's the pilot. That's right. It's the, it's the man in the box is what, is what they say. I really like the fact that they brought that up, um, you know, so often because that was a lot of fun. I mean, that's and, – and it's all over the walls at Top Gun. They, mm-hmm. We talk about that all the time, at least when I went through in 2004. Oh, we that was years, that. years and years and years ago. Oh, my gosh, so long ago. <clears throat> but you're but you're flying the you're flying the 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 state of the art best best the best uh, equipment that that we have now. That's right. Well, you I was you were, you I were, was yeah. Until you retired. Now I'm flying an MD11, <laughs> <laughs> filled with. Uh, so I, always, I I love to tell people this. You know, in the original Top Gun, he says if you if you screw this up, you'll be flying rubber out of Hong Kong. Remember, uh-huh. can I say that on this? Yeah, rubber rubber dog crap. Yeah, rubber dog crap out of Hong Kong or something like that. And so now that's what I'm doing, but I get paid a lot more money to do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. As I hear all, all the military guys, they get out and do their same job, except for they get paid four times as much. That's right. That is true. So the so the Top Gun, uh, you, meant, you mentioned you take out take out the the surface to air and then you just drop a drop a bomb with an F-35? Yeah, that's uh, we would have we would have that would have been a, a well orchestrated uh, large force mission to go in and do that. You would have put a mission commander in charge, and you know the interesting thing is, it, uh, you would have had it. You would have brought in all your Top Gun bros and gals, you know, sisters and brothers, whatever, to come put that mission together, and and they would have that carrier air wing that went to go do that. The amount of training that they do before they launch and go out to sea is tremendous. They would have been prepared to execute a mission like that. The eaches of it and putting it together would have been uh, would have been difficult. In this case, they they made a bunch of um, a bunch of um, um, impossibilities possible. Right, like you can't do that in less than three minutes. Like nobody flies below 100 feet. You know, all these type of things. And um, uh, but the idea that we would send a whole bunch of folks, all of our best and brightest Top Gun br- uh, people, back to uh, to Top Gun to go train for this is is very unrealistic. We wouldn't have done it like that. But once again, it was a great movie. The thing that I found the most unrealistic of the movie uh-huh. was playing a football game in jean shorts on the beach in North Island. Like, who wears jean shorts these days? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what was wrong with the jams and the volleyball? I mean, that was pretty cool, right? Uh-huh. But they had to get some some uh, some, some uh, upper cheese- torso shots. I had to get some cheesecake in there. That's some cheesecake. No, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah, but what about the 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 uh, hey, we're playing crossfire football. We're building a team. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, that's there's all sorts of different ways to build a team, and I thought that uh, you know maybe that's a good way to do it. I, I mean, legitimately, you know, team building. A lot of it needs to happen outside of the office, mm-hmm. you know, outside of the cockpit. And uh, in this case, you know, you're building a team. Make them play together, fight together, you know. And exactly. I thought that that was legitimate. I thought that was totally legitimate. Uh-huh. Okay, so let's uh, let's talk about bottom lines here. Um, and this is one of the this is one of the the biggest questions that that I 
that I really want to get out of you. Speaking for yourself, but also as the leader of talented, sophisticated fighter pilots, warriors, warriors in the art of war, what are some of your general feelings? What are some of the general feelings? I'm asking you to testify on how, how somebody else feels. What's the general feeling of our military today serving under a commander in chief, Joe Biden? Um, so uh, I will tell you that uh, there is, there's a lot of concern out there. There's a lot of folks who aren't happy. There's a lot of folks you know, that, uh, that are concerned about the direction of our country. Um, and I think that there are a lot of guys that are disenfranchised. And when you talk about, you know, how do we get the best and brightest into the military today? You look at our veterans and, uh, and they say they wouldn't join this military today. And that's where majority of our recruiting comes from is our veterans, the people mm -hmm. who, who live down the street, who, you know, you see on a regular basis, you know, that, uh, on veterans day, Memorial day, whatever that individual's in their uniform and you go, wow, I want to be like that person. Yep. Um, so I think that there is great concern about our leadership uh, at the highest levels, the political level, uh, primarily. Um, I think that there's, you know, there's concern about what type of funding we're going to get. Uh, you know, when you look at, and you mentioned this several times during our conversation today, but uh, when you look at the amount of money that uh, that our military folks are getting paid, it's it's doesn't even come close to keep up with inflation right now and, and that's happening a lot across the board so i don't want to take anything away from anybody else we're, we're worried about what the people make at mcdonald's flipping hamburgers make sure that they can feed their families but we're not worried about what the military guys it's it's insane it's insane the number of military folks that are on food stamps and thank you for what you have done and what you continue to do to support our military by helping out our veterans and stuff like that, that really means a lot. And, uh, and I know that, uh, that you really enjoy doing that. And I think that that is tremendous. And I don't want to get too far off subject here, but I'm gonna talk about it because it's right on the tip of my tongue. But when I first joined and people would say, thank you for your service. I was like, don't thank me for my service. Like, I don't, I don't need your pity or whatever. You know what I mean? Uh, it was just weird. It was just an uncomfortable conversation for people to say that. Thank mm -hmm. you for your service. But as I got older, and I realized <clears throat> that they meant it. Does that make sense? Yep. Like people mean it, and um, I do. Yeah. And the um, and so, you know, when you hear that, uh, it means a lot. And I don't think that the young folks, you know, the young Marines and stuff, they need to hear it too. But I think that uh, it's you know, as you get older and as you've done more things, um, and people say that, it's like, wow. I think you really mean that. You know what I mean? Well, it becomes real when we got attacked on 9-11 that it's, it's real. Hey, there's a threat out there, and our military guys are the only only reason that we're, that we're free here. And what's sad today is you've got people voting voting for our leadership that weren't even alive on 9-11. Mm -hmm. So they don't, they don't have that – they don't have that, that feeling that, that – Yeah, it's all in the history books, right? Yep, and the history books are being wiped out. That's right. We don't, want, we don't want to teach people about our history. We want to. We just want to go forward. We just don't want to offend anybody about our history. But uh, you know, I think that, uh, and I'm I'm a perfect example. You know, uh, I had a good career forward. I could have stayed in the Marine Corps um, for another ten years, I believe, and. Uh, uh, it was just time for me to go. I didn't agree with uh, 
with what my leadership in the Marine Corps, the direction that they were headed, um, I'd let them know. But uh, even our three-star generals were getting shot down. Um, and, uh, you know, when I mean shot down, I mean, you know, they were being told to shut up and color uh, on the direction for the Marine Corps. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, then I'm, and I'm speaking Marine Corps specifically. But, uh, you know, I believe that uh, we're headed in the wrong direction uh, in the Marine Corps today. Uh, people ask, well, why didn't you go fight for that? And, um, you know, I, I had family things that I was dealing with, uh, obviously the financial things, you know, a lot more opportunity out in the real world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and who knows? I mean, you know, who knows where it goes, but I believe that uh, I think that we need good leaders in our community as well. And, uh, and I'm happy to participate in that uh, realm. The, um, but it was just time for me to go. And I think that when I look back at it, uh, there was a lot of guilt I carried across the country when I left Yuma and moved to Memphis. And that hung in there for a long time as far as – and what I mean by guilt was I felt like I let my, um, my constituents down, the young men and women who looked up to me as a fighter pilot and as a leader in the Marine Corps. But in the end, you know, I talked to all those folks, and they understood what was going on. But, but what you see is you see lieutenant colonels who are, who are just finishing squadron command, which is the best time of your life. That is, that is what every, Marine, every fighter pilot should work towards, in my opinion, is to be a commanding officer. Uh, and not from a... Um, not from some sort of chest beating uh, feeling, but you want to be that instructor. You want to be that leader. You want to be that mentor. To me, there's nothing more rewarding in the world than doing that. And once you've done it at the 05 level, you should want to go do it at the, and when I say 05, the lieutenant colonel level, you should want to go do it at the colonel level, which is what happened to me. I finished my lieutenant colonel uh, command and I was like, man, that, that was great. And I want to get an opportunity to go do that again and fly fighters and be with the Marines and everything else. And I went and did it. And, uh, and when I was done, I looked at the future and, uh, and I just didn't see it there for me. But the problem today is that we see, we see, I see fighter pilots across all the different services going, you know what? I'm not going to stay the extra four years just for a retirement. I want my life. I'm going to go do something different. Um, and I don't know if that's just from a from a um, a non war footing that we're in, like we're in a peace peacetime military, or if that's uh, or if that's from all of the other things that are getting pushed down on us uh, from you know from the outside from the political level. That the military doesn't feel like the military as you know it to be. That's right. And, you know, the opportunity is great. I mean, for our mechanics, for the guys who work on the airplanes, the guys and gals that work on the airplanes, they can go out and make a ton more money out in the real world. Um, granted, there are some un, in, uh, intangibles, like different allowances that we get and stuff like that, but none of it makes up for, for being able to uh, be with your family more um, or anything else. But, um, but you want to fight for that shining city on top of the hill, right? Like you want to fight – for your America. And, um, and my concern is more than the military. It's for this country right now and where we are as a United States of America. So this, uh, there's a, there's a line in the movie, uh, 13 hours, uh, the, the lost soldiers of Benghazi, the lost, whatever it is, mm-hmm. I just call it 13 hours where, uh, where, um, um, 
Tyrone Woods and uh, and uh, Silva, I forget his first name, um, are are talking in one of the one of the pauses in that in that 13 hours. And he said, you know what? When I got in, I was fighting for something bigger. I was fighting for something bigger than than us. Mm-hmm. That something bigger is gone. Yeah, and I can remember walking the streets of Ramadi in '05, going, "Why the hell am I here? It, what what am I doing here right now?" And you know, I just lost my friend, and um, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, what are we here fighting for? And it goes back to Vietnam. It goes back to why are we here? And that goes back to what we opened up the discussion with, I think, which is, you know, politicians today, they need they need to listen to their military leaders and they need to understand that we need to fight for things that are within our national security interests. And that's it. Uh, you know, I think that we could have done some great work against the Russians in Ukraine. Personally, I think that the way we're doing it right now is great. I think uh I think that there are a lot of things that we could do on the domestic side that would help fight that war even better if we turned the pumps on here, mm-hmm. started making gas, get the EU off the Russians' uh, teat, if you will, for, for fuel, and you know lower the price of gas here. Like I said, I mean, we're worried. If we're worried about talking about Ukraine, there's going to be people that are freezing in New England because yep. they don't have gas. Yep, and it's just they just don't seem – seems to me that leadership just doesn't have – any kind of uh, uh, foresight, uh, understanding a cause and effect, and they're they're worrying about little little things like the green th- the green stuff, and they don't realize the the harm they're doing to the country in general. No, I agree, and to the world, and to the world, and I to agree. the world. So okay, so we have just a few minutes left. As someone who's led our military, and and to me. You led our military. I know you're. I know you're not uh, David Mattis, and I know you're not a uh, uh, General Milley. Thank God. That's why you're my friend. <laughs> um, what's your What's your overall feeling about where America is? Um. So where America is, my concern is that we are. <laughs> we have divided ourselves in this country. And and when I say that I mean at the political level, at the at the highest levels we can't have a conversation because people don't listen, they just talk over each other. Uh there is a way forward for this country and that is, you know, bipartisanship, people working together to make this country put us back on the right direction, right? Uh I think at the lower levels, I mean, you know, uh I don't you know, when I walk around town here, I don't see people running around talking about politics all the time. What are they worried about? They're worried about the price, the fact that the price of their turkey went up 23 percent, mm-hmm. that the price of their groceries are out of control. It is, you know, we need to think about our country as a whole first before we think about the 0.1 percent. That's my biggest concern about this country today is that we're kowtowing to a small part of society that gets a lot of media attention and a lot of political ramification. People think they're going to get votes based on what's happening today, but what's going to happen is what just happened. And I'm surprised that that our red wave or whatever it's supposed to be wasn't more powerful to let those folks really know that. As am I. I'm very surprised by that. And I have to I have to wonder where all the where all the hanging hanging elections were the same place they were in 2020 mm-hmm. and 
how much did the mail-in the mail-in ballots affect that uh, give opportunity to cheat and I think we we better figure a way to fix that yeah and you know I, I don't know I think uh, you know the uh, the abortion thing uh, the you know the Supreme Court decision um, I almost wonder if that was like planted to happen at that time to keep some of those Dems or some of those people who who don't believe in that uh, from from voting for the right answer, which mm-hmm. is what's best for this country. But uh, yeah, it's a. Uh, I think that you know we're in a scary place. Most societies don't live much further than where we are today. Uh, you know, Rome is a perfect example. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes we used to say, you know, I feel like I'm on the outside of Rome watching it burn. By these, you know, we need. I don't know. What Benjamin Franklin said. We, you know, we gave you a republic if you can keep it. That's right. Right now we're right now we're we're losing it. What else would you like to 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 say to the public? Um, well, thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me. It's uh, it's great, and uh, you know, it's 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 been great knowing you for the last year and a half, and I appreciate your patriotism and all that you do for this country, and uh, and all that you're doing, you know, getting the good word out on uh, on what's going on and keeping people apprised of of where we are as a country. I think that that's huge. Um, and uh, hopefully we can do this again. Absolutely. I love, I love having, and then we can uh, we can uh, go get some red meat and some alcohol. <laughs> that's right. Go get some prime rib. All right. Okay. Byron Sullivan, Call Sign Shrek. Thanks for joining us and sharing with us uh, your your candid feelings and your uh, and your tremendous knowledge. Thanks, Ed.